If you could, open up your Bibles to John 13. Uh, we're going to be reading there. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one under your chair, your neighbor's chair. Uh, please grab that. And if you don't own a Bible, take it. We'd love for you to, to own it for good, you know, that would find a home on your shelf or and your table. Uh, and if you don't have one in a language that makes sense to you, like maybe you're reading in Old English, you know, this is one that's actually in a an English language that people speak. So it's a great opportunity for you to have that as well. But as we've been going through the story of John, and we've been working through the Gospel of John for quite a bit, we're coming to a very climactic moment uh, that Jesus has just looked at Judas and said, hey, you're the betrayer, go do what you're going to do, and has sent him on his way. And now it's just left Jesus in the last meal and the last night that he's going to spend with his faithful 11 disciples, and he's going to pass on some of the richest, greatest teachings we hear from Jesus that are so impactful. It's like his last words before he disappears, before he goes. And he starts with something in John 13 that is simple but pivotal. You know, understand what that is? There are things that are simple but pivotal, like simple. They're simple. They're easy to understand. They're easy to grasp. They're not, but they're so important. They're absolutely important. If you don't do that, then things blow up. For example, like changing your oil, right? Guys, it's simple every 4,000 miles to go and empty the oil and fill it up. But if you don't, what happens to the vehicle? Some of you have realized this. It explodes, Okay. I learned that on my first truck, all of a sudden it goes, boom, and then it stopped running. And my dad's like, you changed the oil? I was like, yeah, months ago. And he just opened up the thing. It's like, oh, that stick is completely dry. You have not done this at all and almost completely blew up my truck. And here Jesus is going to start with something that's completely simple, but it's pivotal. In Mercy Hill Church, I believe this. I believe that if we understand what Jesus is talking about, is if we as a community could wrap our minds around, because the simple thing he said is this, love one another. It's simple, but it's pivotal. And if we as a church could do that, we would be radically different than any other community that exists in Cincinnati. We would be radically different, that our church would be part of a radical transformation of the city and the campus. And my hope is, as we look at this passage, that we would dig a little bit deeper, you know, because it's really easy for us. It's really easy for us to think about how people haven't been unloving to us, but it's really hard for us to turn that mirror on ourselves and say, how have I been unloving to others? And the thing about transformation is it doesn't happen in people's lives from saying, that guy over there, that neighbor, that guy in my connection group, that person at church, if they would just be more loving, everything would be better. That doesn't change anything. What changes is when we begin to look at the Word of God and we use it into a mirror into our own souls to say, Lord, where does this need to transform and change my life? And I believe if Mercy Hill Church could just do this simple but yet pivotal thing, we would be trans transformationally different than any other community. Let me pray. 
Lord Jesus, open our eyes, open our hearts as we look at this passage. Allow us to understand what your words are saying and what you are doing, Lord. Let us lay aside our pride. Let us lay aside um, our feelings to be right or whatever, Lord, and let us pick up a desire to be convicted by the word of God and transformed by it. God, we want the things that you say to your disciples to be true of us as a church and that we would see transformation happen all around us. Uh, God, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in verse 31. It says this, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Anybody confused yet? All right. How many times they say glorified? Okay, we're gonna get to that. Little children, yet a little while, excuse me, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, when you look at that first verse, it is confusing. The word glory is in there four times a lot. Jesus really loves that word, apparently, and it can be extremely confusing. But let me just say it in the simplest terms. What Jesus is telling his disciples, what he's saying at this moment, is that the time of the cross is at hand, that his death is coming near. At his time to be, to be beaten, to be stripped of his clothes, to be hung across to die, like that time is coming. And he's calling it his glory. And we're going to talk about that for a minute. But first, I want us to see this, is that Jesus knew it was going to happen. That if you ever look at the cross and you think, man, this is something that was done to Jesus. This is something that was outside of his plan. You're totally missing the story. Because he knew from the very beginning that this was the plan. In fact, we know it because how many times in the book of John has Jesus said, hey, my hour has not yet come, or my hour has come, there's going to be a moment where I'm lifted up. Just over and over and over and over again, he's pointed to this moment going to happen. But he didn't just figure it out when he became alive in the person of Jesus, because we can look back at Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is a prophecy written about a suffering servant that would come, and through his stripes we would be healed a prophecy about God's plan of rescuing humanity through the cross. But it was even before that, when he established the sacrificial system and people would lay their lambs before the priest and symbolically the sins of the people would be put on that and a lamb would be slain. And do you not remember what Jesus was called when he showed up to be baptized What did John the Baptist call him? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it was even before that that we see in Scripture that even before he created a single thing, he knew that his creation would rebel against him, and he had already had a plan that would involve him dying on the cross. How amazing is our God, fully in control, fully knowing what's going on, not reacting, but completely in control of the situation. See, when we look at the cross, it's not God's plan that's gone awry. It's God's plan gone as he had ordered it and ordained it to be. And he says, in this plan, his glory will be seen. He says it four times. What does that word glory mean? Sometimes we think about that like on a football field or on a battle or... I can only think of guy examples. Sorry, ladies. We think about it in a lot of different ways. I think it's important to understand what glory means. And I'm actually stealing this definition from a pastor from Candeo. 
He says, God's glory is this, is, it is his infinite beauty, value, and holiness on display. Let me say it again. God's glory is this. It is his infinite beauty, value, and holiness on display. And that on display is really important. Those three words matter, that his infinite beauty and value and holiness isn't hidden away, but it's seen. And the way that God is going to bring forth his glory to be seen is not through a parade or a TV show, but through the cross, which, by the way, it's a really odd way to bring about your glory, is it not? Because like, we may not think that today because, you know, you'll go on, students, you'll go on your campus and you will see people walking around with crosses around their neck and you'll ask them what that means. And they will be like, oh, I just love it. To me, it means this. It's just this beautiful thing. It's just like, you'll walk into houses and it would just be like, we'll see that you, that, you know, you get married, women get married and all of a sudden they start putting crosses everywhere, especially Christian women. Like it's all over the walls. If you were to like bring somebody from like 2000 years ago and they would see that, they're like, why do you have that? I'm like, what do you mean? It's beautiful. It'd be like, for us, it'd be like if somebody just started putting electric chairs and like, you know, guillotines all over the place. Like, we'd be like, what, is this person a masochist? Like, why would they ever do that? The cross is an odd thing for God's glory to be displayed, it would seem. Would it not? It was the place where Jesus was stripped naked. He was beaten by sinful men, hung up to die. It was a tool to be used by the Roman to humiliate those whom they were going to kill in the most painful, agonizing way possible they could think of. And yet Jesus says, this is the moment of glorification for him. I'm going to give you two reasons that that is absolutely true. See, the cross is the moment of glorification for him and the Father it is the absolute moment of glorification. Why? Because it is the moment, it is the place where the redemption of humanity took place. It is by the cross that righteous, the righteous and holy one would be killed by the hands of sinful men, that on the cross the holy one who knew no sin would become sin, that all of humanity's sin would be placed on the perfect son of God and the holy perfect son of God and the father would punish sin in that son and us as sinners, people like me and you, can find redemption because sin was punished in the person of Christ instead of us because we find faith and grace. Because we have faith and we have been saved by grace and mercy of God, not us. Nothing we have done. That's why the cross is glorious. You know why else the cross is glorious? Because it is the ultimate example of God's love. A chapter later, Jesus would say this, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Christ followers in the room, here's the, here's the most beautiful, amazing thing. Because of the cross, because of the cross, God calls you friend. Even though the when he found you, he didn't find you as friend but enemy. Because in Romans 5.10, it tells us that he laid down his life, that while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son. That when we see the cross, why it is so beautiful? Because it is God's perfect example of love, being glorified, being seen, his infinite value, his holiness on display and his love for humanity. 
You see on the cross, the infinite beauty, value, and holiness was on display in the midst of that horror. And you know what it is? What's amazing about that? And in the moment, his shame became our righteousness, our boast. His wounds have healed us. Through his death, we have been brought to life because he has paid for it all. So when he says, glory, 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 this is the glorious moment where I redeem my people. This is the glorious moment where I put on display the love that I have for humanity, the perfect, holy love that I have. It's an amazing picture. Then in verse 34, he says this. Look at it with me. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The first thing Jesus says is it's a new commandment, but it doesn't feel like a new commandment, does it? Because, you know, Jesus quoted, he quoted Leviticus 19, 18 earlier and saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember that story? Where he looked at the story of the Good Samaritan. Come on, church kids, y'all remember that one? Learned in school. Y'all did the felt board? I don't know if y'all did that. I mean, just my generation. But in that moment, like, remember that he looks at him and says, somebody asked him the question, like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you love your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. He says, the second one is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. It doesn't seem, it's like, wait a minute, Jesus, did you already say this? Well, it's a little bit different. And there's a caveat he adds even to the command that we see in Leviticus 19, 18. He says, love one another. Catch this. Just as I have loved you, love one another. Meaning that the love that we're meant to have for one another is meant to be modeled after Jesus' love for, of his disciples. That's the bar. That's the standard. That's the example. And that's what met, that is what love is meant to look like. But Ernie, what does that look like? And you'd be like, oh my gosh. And I'd be like, well, do I have to go back and read through all of John and just watch every example of Jesus loving people and saying that's how, well, that would actually be a good idea. But I think there's something that we could draw immediately from looking at Jesus' life over the last couple of weeks. So we have one thing that I think we could see about what this love looks like is one, is it sacrificial? The kind of love that we're meant to have for one another is sacrificial. It cannot be about getting. It cannot be about taking. It cannot be about scorekeeping. See, the world has that kind of love. The world has the kind of love that says, if that person, if your friend isn't as invested in the relationship as you are, then you know what? Cut ties and run because you deserve more. Or if that friend is, or if that person isn't loving you in the same way, or the most important person you could love is yourself. See, what the world's love is all about, what do you get from somebody else? But God's kind of love is not about what do you get, but what do you give? What do you lay before? See, if you're gonna love somebody the way that God is calling you to love somebody, it's gonna cause sacrifice in your life. And I know a lot of you aren't parents yet, but one day when you have kids, you're gonna realize it. You're gonna realize how much you're going to have to love your kids. 
how much of your time, talent, and treasure, how much of your life you're gonna lay down. Some of you are starting to figure that out when you got married, right? Some of you guys that just got married, you're like, man, I just realized how selfish I was. I remember that. I remember I got married, I was like, I, I didn't realize how selfish I was till like, after like a week of being married, and I was like, man, you're not going home. I can't play Xbox. I just can't do whatever I want to do anymore. You know, it's easy when we're dating because, hey, I could be nice for like two, three hours, and, you know, I could be sacrificial for a couple hours, but all day, every day? Then you got kids, guys, next level. No more hobbies. Your kids are your hobbies. If you're going to love somebody, it's going to have to cause you to sacrifice. Jesus says there's no greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus is calling us to follow his example. The second thing I think we have to see about God's love is this, is that it's anchored in the truth of God. It's anchored in the truth of God. The kind of love that we're meant to have for one another has to be anchored in the word of God and the truth of God. Because what God has put in the word, what he's given us is a road to follow, an example to follow, a person to follow, an ethic to follow. Not just to have an ethic, but to point to whatever the greatest life you could have, which is found in following Jesus. And whenever we love, whenever our love is not marked by the truth of God, we have traded into a counterfeit version of that love. When we approve of people or encourage people to live and walk in bitterness or anger or any of those things or to participate in behaviors that the Bible says not to do, You're not loving that person, even though it may feel like you're loving them because they're saying that you're loving them. You're not speaking the truth to them. You're speaking a lie. You know what would be one of the most loving things some of us can do? Is that we would confront our friends in the sin that we see that is so obvious in their life that they just have a blind nose to. And not in a way that we put our finger down on them. But how amazing would it be for you to put your arm around your brother or your sister in Christ and say, hey, I love you. But I've noticed this thing and it can't stay. I can't be for this. And I believe in you. I forgive you. I'm not holding any of it against you. I'm going to forget it after we walk away from it. And I'm going to walk away with you. How different would that be? How loving would that be? You know, the Bible says this, how profuse are the kisses of a friend, but how faithful are the wounds. Uh, that's wrong. How profuse are the kisses of an enemy, how faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes loving people doesn't feel like loving people. But that's why our love is not tied to how does it make us feel, but it's tied to the anchoring and the truth in the word of God. See, love is so essential that the Bible talks a lot about it. In fact, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8, where he talks about the importance of love. And you probably heard it read at a wedding, but he's not talking about marital love there, guys. 
He's thinking about agape love, the kind of love that brothers and sisters in Christ are meant to have towards one another. And this is the importance. If you look at verses one through four with me, one through three right there, he says, this is the importance. He says, if I speak in a tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I have gained nothing. And then the next couple of verses, he starts describing what love looks like. And this is my challenge to you. Don't think about how your spouse could have love, you know, how your spouse needs to hear this, or your friend needs to hear this, or your connection group leader needs to hear, or the person in your connection group, or, or the person on staff. Like, don't think about, think about how does, how is this present in your life? In verse four, he says this, love is patient. It is kind. Is that how you are with your friends? your children, your parents, your roommates. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Is there someone you love but you resent? That you just store up bitterness? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. I would encourage you to examine that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 and to ask, where does my love not look like God's love? And where is the place that I need to go that needs to change in my heart and my mind? See, that's how we're meant to love. But who are we meant to love? That's the change of the commandment. He says, love one another. If you remember the specifics, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he's saying, hey, you need to love one another. Like that is a non-negotiable. It has to happen. It has to be there. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. And he's not saying, hey, you got to love one another, but you don't have to love those people out there. Because Jesus had already given the command to love your neighbors and said, hey, who is your neighbor? Everyone you bump into. Those are your neighbors. The people you don't know, those are your neighbors. But you know what Jesus is saying? That if we can't love one another, there's no way we're going to love them. If I can't love people who want what's best for me, who love me and are for me and have the unity of Christ in the spirit, then how am I gonna love people who are opposite, have an opposition towards me? How can I love people who are my enemies? See church, if we're gonna love people, if we're gonna love anyone, we have to start by loving one another, the family of God that God has given us. The church should love itself. But the problem is guys, we're not very good at doing it. A lot of the times our connection group in our church doesn't look very different than any other group that meets in this city. That in our church, we could find, we could find places where we're full of gossip, where we hold grudges, where we believe the worst and even root against one another. And when I say that, don't think about the person that's done that to you. Think about how you've done that to somebody else. 
This happens in the church. Even sometimes I bump into people and say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Ever heard anybody say that? If they're a Christian, I say, well, then you hate yourself because you are the church. And furthermore, what the Word of God tells us is that the, that the church is the bride of Christ. If you came up to me and said, Ernie, I really like you, but I got a problem with Laura. I don't like her at all. You would never say it. You'd probably say it the other way around. <laughs> but if you said it, it's going to be pretty hard for us to have a good relationship. Because me and my spouse were one. Jesus and the church is one. You can't hate the church and be in deep abiding relationship with Jesus. Like it's something going to be so broken about that relationship. And Jesus said one more thing about this. Not only are we meant to love one another, but look at verse 35 again. He says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You know what would be different? You know what would cause the church to stand out in Cincinnati? You know what would make Mercy Hill be different than any other community if we were actually a community that loved one another? That would be different. In fact, Jesus said, this should be the thing that distinguishes people who follow me from people who don't follow me, is that we love one another. Don't think about how somebody hasn't loved you. Think right now, how am I loving other people? Don't think about how people have hurt you right now. Think about how you've hurt others, because no one's hands in this room are clean. Not a single one of us. What would be different if people saw a community of people that actually loved one another, not just said they loved one another, not just stated it out, but actually physically did the things that laid down their life for one another, that forgave one another. Like most people don't even have a home that they could say they love one another. Most people's friends groups, it's just a bunch of backbiting, gossip, sniping at one another, trying to get over on the other, feeling good by knocking each other down. Aren't you sick of that? Jesus is calling us to something different. You know, we used to do trips to Prague pretty regularly. And there was this guy, Andre, he always hung out. He wasn't a Christian. In fact, he was a pro proclaimed atheist, but he would bring all of his friends to Christ. Like we used to, like all of his friends to us, and then they would become Christians. And it was like, it was like Andre has no idea how many people he's, an accident led to the Lord, you know, like. But one day I just asked him, I was like, hey, why do you hang out with us? Like year after year after year, you hang out with us. Like year after year, like I come back here and you come and hang out with me. Why do you do that? He goes, because of the way that you treat one another. I can't find that anywhere else. I can't put my finger on it. I don't agree with anything you're saying, but the way that you treat one another is different. What the church wants more than anything is not somebody to be right, but to be loved. What the world wants is that. It's not for somebody to be right, but to be loved. And we have an opportunity to do that. And they have an opportunity to see a community that loves one another, doesn't store up bitterness, but seeks out conviction to repent over the things they have done 
and to restore right relationship. But Ernie, you don't understand what that person did to me. I'm going to tell you this, I don't know, but it can't be worse than what we did to Jesus. It can't be worse than what you did. I'm like, if you put your rap sheet of what you've done to him compared to what he's done to you, he has loved. Like when you read through that list in 1 Corinthians 13 about what love is, do you realize this, that Jesus did that perfectly for every single one of us? And he saw what we did and he still did it and still does it today. He's forgiven us. He's loved us perfectly. And now he's asking us as believers to do the same with one another. In verse 36, it ends like it's almost like changing the subject. Look at this real quick. It says, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Jesus gave him like a little hint to Peter about what's coming. Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, write this down because this is what we're gonna learn here. That we cannot, that write this down, we cannot follow God in our flesh. See, the story of Peter works this way. At this moment, I believe he truly believes what he's saying. I believe that he really thinks like, I'm gonna do this. I believe he is really devoted to Jesus at this moment. But we know in the story that all of a sudden, in just a couple of hours, a little eight-year-old girl is gonna ask him, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, and he's gonna run away scared from an eight-year-old girl. But we also know this, that in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes down and indwells Peter and the other disciples and followers of Jesus, that there's this new found like just courage in which he stands up in front of the Sanhedrin and says, look, we're going to keep talking about God even if you kill us. And one day he would be killed on a cross. He would die for Jesus. See, what I want us to see when we look at these last couple of verses is what Peter Peter had a desire to follow God. He had a desire to love Jesus and be with Jesus, but he could not do that in his own flesh. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit indwelled him that he'd be able to follow God. Okay, Ernie, what does this have to do with our passage? If you try to love one another in your flesh, in your own power, in your own ability, you will not be able to do it. You will only be able to love one another by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. So some of you guys that have just come into this room because it's January and you're trying to get your life right because you didn't like last year and you're trying to figure things out and you don't know God and you think if I just do enough good things and all of a sudden I'm gonna be in right relationship with God and this is just something to add to your list about being in right relationship with God, stop it, don't do that. That is not the step you need to take. The step you need to take is you need to realize that you're in need of a savior and no matter how many goods you got, they're not gonna measure up to even outweigh all your bads. Because one single sin is enough for you to separate you from God. And what you need to do is what every believer has done in this room. Admit your need that you are a sinner, that you have been, you have been broken by sin. And what you need is for God to put you back together. And you trust that your sin was dealt with on the cross. 
and he's imparted life to you. Now, if you are a Christian in this room, if you are a follower of Christ, I am pleading with you. If you walk out of the room saying, I just got to try harder to love better, you're missing it. What you need to do is open yourself to God. Bury yourself in his word and in the praises of who he is and allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of things and to spur you on to love those around you. The love that God is calling for does not come from man. The love is called agape love. It is given by God. It is from God. It's been perfected by him and he imparts it to us, but we have to get it from him, not from ourselves. So what does that look like? It looks like building, it looks like cultivating a relationship with Jesus that you overflow with the love of God that it leads you to love other people. It causes you to cultivate a relationship with Jesus that in your spirit, you become convicted by the ways that you are not walking in line with who he is and that you would repent and look for him to bring about rightness in your heart and in your life. This is not a try harder, do more church. This is a lean in, press into God kind of church. And he will produce these things in you. Trust him. And as you love God, become a people that loves one another. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this simple yet pivotal statement to love one another. It is a command that you have given us, but just like everything else you tell us, we cannot do it absence of your power. We cannot do it absence of your control over our lives. We cannot do it absence of your grace and your mercy. We need you, Lord, to cultivate that in us. And so, Lord, may we be a people that lean into our good shepherd, that follow our good God, that treasure his words and allow him to speak freely into our hearts and minds and convict us of the things that we are on the wrong path with. Lord, convict us of bitterness. Convict us of a lack of trust. Convict us of a lack of love for others. Convict us, Lord, of the areas in our life that we hold back what we would want someone to give to us. Lord, in these moments right now, in this place, transform our hearts and bring about radical healing in our lives that would lead us to forgive others to let go of things and to move forward and actually love one another. Jesus, please make this church a kind of church that is marked by the love of God and the love of one another. That that would be the thing that people would see because if they're seeing that, they're seeing your perfect love coming through us because we don't own it. Oh, Lord, let it be. We love you. Amen.